Well, this is week two in our class on the Great Awakening. And um, I, I think in the first place, I just want to, in your handout, you have a list of recommended readings. So I just brought a few of the, of, of the basic ones. Uh, there's a lot on this list, secondary sources, primary sources, secondary being more modern works about the events of the Great Awakening and biographies. The primary sources are, are the literature actually that was produced at the time in the midst of it. The Great Awakening, this book here by Joseph Tracy was written I think like in 1842. It's an old, it's an old book. Uh, it's put out by Banner of Truth, actually as all the ones on this stack are. Uh, they have quite a bit of literature on the, on the Great Awakening. Uh, this is full of actually, even though it's a secondary source, it was written a century after the Great Awakening, it's, it's essentially a compilation of primary sources, letters between pastors, accounts of awakenings in various local congregations at that time. Uh, very compelling reading. I would, I would highly recommend that. If you, if you just want to get a good, solid uh, understanding and grasp of the spiritual nature and events of the Great Awakening. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, A New Biography by Ian Murray. This is fantastic. That's, if you like biographies, which to me is almost the best way to learn history, is through the, the perspective, through, the, through the, the flesh and blood of a, per, of a person. Um, this in terms of the Great Awakening is fantastic, but it's much broader than just the Great Awakening because it's the biography of his whole life. Uh, another biography is on George Whitfield, two volumes by Arnold Dalimore. Uh, really, really fantastic. So these, these three volumes, well, four, two volumes of, of Whitfield, uh, very highly recommended if you're interested in this subject. So that being said, uh, this is the second week. Uh, the, the lesson this morning is Dutch pietism comes to America. So we'll talk a little bit about pietism before we get too far into it. Uh, Theodore Freelinghausen is the man of interest this morning. Theodore Freelinghausen, he was uh, a Dutchman who came over to America in 1720. So we're, we're primarily going to be looking at his life and the controversy that, that uh, erupted with the commencement of his, his Puritan style of preaching in a confessionally formal setting in early America. So uh, with that in mind, I want to read a couple of verses out of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. This was a sermon text of Freelinghausen in one of his earliest sermons when he first came to uh, America in New Jersey. And it was, and it was a, a, an awakening sermon. So we'll start with this text, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, and then we'll get right into things without delay. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand, mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth 
at my word. Let's open with prayer. Lord, we're gathered, as always, this morning on the first day of the week in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose blessings we ask as we discuss these great things of Jesus Christ. Be with us by your Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. Last week, we, we swept very quickly through two centuries between the Reformation and the Great Awakening. And we just, we just noted some basic principles that are at work. We talked about the confessional formalism that set in uh, in the European nations that had been affected by the Reformation. And then the, 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 that formalism uh, that set in the uh, some would call it orthodoxism as opposed to orthodoxy, which is a good thing. Orthodoxism tends to have a ring of, of dead orthodoxy uh, to it. That certainly uh, began to be more commonplace as people were familiar with the Protestant creeds, uh, but the inner life was little by little being evacuated from Christian congregations, from Protestant congregations. We talked about the Puritans in England and how they, they preached in this context of, a, of an encroaching formalism. And we looked at the style of their preaching and how they were at pains, men like, like Richard Sibbs and uh, Thomas Hooker and John Flavel, they were at pains to conform their own preaching to what they understood to be the preaching of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, both in the, in, in the matter, that is, what the Holy Spirit preaches. He, he preaches sin, righteousness, judgment. He preaches concerning these things as he's been sent by Christ into the world. But then also they, they labor to conform their preaching to the manner that the Holy Spirit preached. And that is very directly, not generally just floating around in, in basic precepts and principles. Certainly those are good, but they, like a laser, directed their... Uh, their preaching to the heart according as the need required depending on the category of people that they were preaching to and, and in the context of a of a, of a, uh, a cold formalism then the category was men who thought that they were Christians because they understood in the head saving doctrines but it hadn't entered and penetrated the heart and so they preached accordingly in an awakening way and the 17th century in England was an awakening time. It was a very, uh, it was a very rich spiritual time with the Puritan preachers. Well, to a large degree, the preaching in the, in the context of the Great Awakening was a revival of Puritan-style preaching, conforming to the, the, the matter and the manner of the preaching of, of the Holy Spirit, as much as they could, obviously. Uh, there's an infinite chasm between the two, but as co-laborers, as Paul talked about himself and Apollos with God, this, this was the burden of the Puritans to preach in this way. And, and it's, it's very similar to what we see happening as the Great Awakening began to commence, when there was also a time of barren, cold, uh, dead orthodoxy and formalism. Now, in the case of Hooker's ministry, this kind of English Puritan preaching uh, migrated to America, came across the Atlantic, 
into New England. Uh, Hooker, as I mentioned last week, and as, as you, you, you know if you're really good students of American history, uh, Hooker was the founder of Connecticut. So you had Hooker, you had John Cotton, you had Thomas Shepard, some of these great early New England Puritans who preached in this same way. Uh, but then over time, as virtually always, a generation or two passed in uh, New England, and this same cold formalism began to set in. I mean, it's, it's endemic. Uh, when you have the spiritual gospel in a, in a world in which, in a sense, we're kind of underwater and things just get barnacles on them over the passage of time, uh, this is what went on in New England. So that Samuel Blair, who we quoted last week, who, who had his ministry in Pennsylvania, in the colony of Pennsylvania in the 17. Uh, 30s and 40s. This is how he captured the spirit of the age. We read this last week. They were, says Blair, very generally through the land careless at heart and stupidly indifferent about the great concerns of eternity. Thus religion lay dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. Well, that's where we ended last week. And so we want to pick up right there and start to look this morning at the first first rays, as it were, uh, of, of new life that appeared uh, not in New England first and not in Pennsylvania first. We'll, we will come to those in coming weeks, but in New Jersey, in, in Dutch territory, really. You, you know, again, if you know something of American history, how uh, the English settled New England and then also down in Virginia, uh, the Dutch came to the middle colonies, to New York first. You know, Henry Hudson came in and the Hudson River and, and all of that. Even though Hudson was an Englishman, he was sailing for the Dutch East India Company. And so that was settled uh, by the Dutch, New York. It was called New, uh, New Netherlands at first until the English takeover. And then it became New York after the, uh, uh, the Duke of York, who later became King of England. But anyhow, so that's how New... Netherlands turned into New York, and the city that was founded or bought, you remember, by Peter Minuet, who, who was a Dutchman also, uh, was called New Amsterdam at first, but then it got changed to New York. So uh, the Dutch, Dutch gave up power to the English by way of force. But in the period of time that we're talking about, it, the, the Dutch influence was pervasive. And so uh, the religion had this Dutch flavor about it, and we'll get into that in the next, next several minutes over the course of the hour. Well, in 1683, a Dutch minister came over from Holland. His name was Guillaume Bartoff, Guillaume Bartoff, and he settled with his family on the west shore of the Hudson, so not in New Netherlands, but in New Jersey. First Dutch Reformed pastor there. Uh, it was a wilderness, and uh, religion was at a very low ebb. Blair's description that we just read could apply to the situation in the wilderness of New Jersey as well. Uh, the Dutch, whereas the English came over to America, and religion was at the very forefront of their priorities, you know, you know about the pilgrims and the, the Puritans as they came over, religion was right there at the front of the motives for coming over to be a light on a, a city on a hill, and so forth. Uh, the Dutch came over primarily for trade. Uh, religion was not at the top of their priorities as they came over. And yet men were religious, as they always are, to some degree. And so 
so Bartov came over. He was very zealous, very zealous and uh, tireless, really. He traveled on horseback, and he founded a little congregation here and a little congregation there over the course of 20 years. So by the time you're from 1683 till the early years of the 1700s, over that course of time, he had planted 11 new congregations that were spread out all over uh, on the west shore of the, of the Hudson River. Well, obviously, uh, the work was too great for one man. I mean, he, he simply couldn't keep up with everything. And so he sent back a request to the classes of Amsterdam uh, of the Dutch Reformed Church in the Netherlands. He sent back a request for help. Send, send me over another man. Send me some help. Well, while all that was going on, there, there did happen to be a young man through the course of these years that, that Bartok was laboring in New Jersey who, in East Friesland, in the Netherlands, this, is just, this would be just north of the Netherlands, or I'm sorry, just north of Amsterdam, uh, the capital city there, uh, on the edge of the North Sea. Uh, in that little town of East Friesland, there was a young man who was being trained uh, for the ministry, and his name was Theodore Freelinghausen, and he's the subject of, of our study this morning. Theodore Freelinghausen, he was being reform, uh, being trained up uh, very arduously in the Reformed pietistic tradition. The Reformed pietistic tradition. Now, Whitfield, later on, and we'll get to this again in coming weeks, Whitfield uh, referred later on to this, this young man, Theodore Freelinghausen, as the beginner of the, of the work, the beginner of the work, when, when, when he's asked about the Great Awakening and how things commenced, humanly speaking, he said it was this young man. So it's, it's an appropriate place to start with Theodore Freelinghausen. Well, I mentioned the Reformed Pietistic tradition. So we have to ask what that is. Uh, but before we ask what the Reformed Pietistic tradition is, we have to ask what is pietism to begin with. Uh, this could be... the. the <laughs> Uh, pietism could be an entire class very, very easily by itself. Uh, pietism comes, obviously, from the word piety. And what is piety? Piety is, is in a nutshell, godly living. That, that's one good, simple way to define it. Piety is godly living. Pietism, as a movement... It has to be understood as a reaction, and, and we're already familiar with it just from last week's lesson, even though we didn't use the words. Pietism is a reaction to, to the barren orthodoxy that begins to settle in uh, and had set in after the Reformation. So there's a, there, there's, it's important to distinguish between two kinds of pietism. You have Lutheran or German piet, pietism, and then you have Reformed pietism. Two, two branches of the same concern to respond to dead, barren, cold orthodoxy. Well, Lutheran pietism was a reaction to the distinctly Lutheran orthodoxy that, that commenced after Luther's death. It became very polemic, very uh, contentious. Uh, arguing was going on. Sermons had devolved in, in 
Lutherans in, in Luther's Germany after he died, sermons very often were reduced to, to, to just lengthy diatribes on the minutia of doctrine and how this pastor had erred. And uh, people began, as you can understand, to be very worn out with this. And so this pietistic movement uh, began to work its leaven in Germany that said, no, we need to concentrate on the heart. We need, we need to emphasize the heart, not the doctrine. And so uh, what was a healthy reaction over time became an overreaction so that there was a, an elevating or a prioritizing of subjective experience over precision of doctrine. There's, there's a great danger, as we know, in that. Uh, but then Reformed pietism, on the other hand, uh, which would have been in England and the Netherlands, in England it was called Puritanism. Puritanism is exactly the same thing as Reformed pietism. There's no difference. In the Netherlands, it was called Dutch pietism. And they were akin. The Dutch and the English were very much on the same page with this, this reformed pietism, as it's called. And in, in, in their cases, they were wedded to what's called experimental piety or experimental divinity. You may have heard that phrase, experimental divinity, which simply is, is the priority is on both together. They're, they're, they're sewn together in one piece between doctrine and practice uh, or experience and theology. They both go together. You can't have one without the other, but in a sense, the priority in the sense that it's the foundation would go on the side of theology or doctrine. Uh, this is the foundation upon which all pious experience must be built. If you don't build your pious experience on doctrine, biblical doctrine, then you'll very quickly go astray. And so even though they, they, they said there's an equality between the two because both are necessary, the doctrine is the foundation. So the, the milk of the word, as it, as it were, uh, has to be sucked in to the heart and the soul so that, so that it becomes the very life and the marrow of the church's life collectively, but every individual member of the church. So you're sucking in this marrow. That's the imagery that, that one of the great Reformed pietists, William Ames, used. You're sucking in this, the, the milk of the word uh, into your very heart and soul and bones, strengthening you. And that's, that's what makes a solid, pious Christian. Well, in Holland, Frelinghausen, as I said, was being nursed up in this Reformed pietistic tradition of experimental divinity. And it was embedded in... The, the standards of the Dutch Reformed Church, the three forms of unity. And it, 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 it doesn't take long to read. It's great. It's, it's comparable to the Westminster Confession uh, in many ways. You've got the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the Belgic Confession of Faith, and the Canons of Dort. These, these, three, these three documents of the Reformed Church are called the three forms of unity. Those were the doctrinal standards, and it was what Frelinghausen was raised on. Well, take the Heidelberg Catechism, which is, I, I have excerpts of that, the very first questions in the handout. Right at the outset in question two. Question one, by the way, is a classic. That, that, that is a classic. In fact, uh, our son uh, took some picture off the internet, I, get, I guess, and blew it up and framed it up for Sue and me, and we have it hanging up at home, just a question one and the answer of it, uh, which I forget if I have it in the handout or not. I think I do have. 
Yeah, yeah, question one, and the answer is in there. It's so excellent, so excellent. There's a warmth, very famously, about the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, it asks, beginning in question two, uh, it asks, what is necessary for us to know uh, in order to live and die happily? And the answer, there's, it's a three-part answer, but the first part is the greatness of my sin and misery. Well, there you go. Uh, I mean, that sums up what we talked about last week in terms of the priority of the emphasis that the Puritans put on their preaching, this, the, the doctrine of preparation. You need to know your sin and misery before you can actually become truly and eternally happy. So there's this paradox in there. Well, it was sewn right into the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the greatness of my sin and misery, uh, which the equivalent, in a sense, is in the Beatitudes, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are they that mourn. Uh, this is, again, that spiritual paradox. Well, question, question uh, three then asks, in the Heidelberg Catechism, from where do you know your misery? Answer, from the law of God. Question five, can you keep this perfectly? Answer, no, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Question eight, are we so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil? Answer, yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Well, this is, this is, this is the marrow of, of theology right here in terms of the beginning of it. Certainly, the foundation is being laid. There's three doctrines, if you notice there, that, that are... Uh, wrapped up in these few words. You've got the doctrine of total depravity, the necessity of the new birth by the work of the Spirit, and you've got the work of the law, convincing of sin. So these are three great doctrines. And it's the foundation of the Reformed pietism uh, in which Frelinghausen was raised. Uh, However, it runs counter in, in every part to the prevailing mood in the middle colonies to which Frelinghausen was about to be appointed. So you you can already anticipate this clash. You've got this cold formalism. Men are secure in in their hypocrisy. And when I say hypocrisy, I'm using it in the way it would have been used back then. Nowadays, we tend to use the word as if a man knows he's being deceitful intentionally. He's pretending to be one thing, but he knows he's not. And that is true. Uh, but the way that the word hypocrite was used uh, during the Great Awakening was of men who sincerely thought that they were fine. They felt secure, but they weren't, and they needed to be undeceived. That, that is the way the word hypocrite generally is used in the context of the Great Awakening. Just, just so that, that we know that going in, because it's a word especially that Edwards uh, uses quite a bit. And he's speaking of self-deceived people. Well, Frelinghausen was ordained in the year 1717. 1717. Uh, he was born, incidentally, in the year 1691, which is the year that John Flavel back in England died. So it, there's a good, uh, a good connection there between Flavel, uh, chronologically speaking, uh, and, and Frelinghausen. So he was born in 1691. In 1717, he was ordained... He accepted a small charge in East Friesland, which, as I said earlier, was was just north of Amsterdam. The very next year, he had only been in the ministry one year, uh, on Christmas Eve of 1718, 
a flood devastated the entire community of East Friesland. And uh, he was out of a job. His people couldn't, couldn't support him anymore. I mean, they were struggling themselves to rebuild houses and so forth. And so he was out of a, out of a, a, a job. And he was casting about for uh, a new position somewhere, somehow. And it was at just this time, then we come back to Guillaume Bartoff's request, uh, Freelinghausen was approached by the classes of Amsterdam with Bartoff's request in their hand. He said, would you be willing to accept this request to go and preach in Raritan? Well, Freelinghausen was delighted. He accepted immediately, thinking that uh, Raritan was someplace in Holland. I mean, he just assumed. And when he found out that it was 3,000 miles away in the American wilderness, uh, he hesitated, but he resorted to Psalm 15 that speaks of the man who's blessed, who swears to his hurt and does not change. And so he felt committed. He had given his word uh, ignorantly, yet nonetheless he kept his word. And so he got on a ship, and in September of 1719, he embarked for America. And he arrived at the beginning of 1720. So at the beginning of 1720, he immediately took charge of four of those 11 congregations that Bartolf had planted. So now he's riding horseback, uh, doing the circuit, as it were, between four very small uh, congregations, none of which were filled with spiritual men and women at all. One of, one of his congregations, there's an there's a, uh, illustration of on your handout, Six Mile Run. Six mile run. Uh, that's, that's one of the buildings that he would have preached in. Well, evidence of true religion uh, here among these congregations was very sparse. Uh, a co-worker of Freelinghausen's, who actually succeeded him in the ministry there in New Jersey, said this, and it sounds very much like what we read by Samuel Blair. He said, the necessity of a new heart had almost entirely been lost of. Formalism and self-righteousness almost universally prevailed. Christians were not ashamed to ridicule Christian experience, and many had become very resolute in opposing it. So the burden of Freelinghausen's ministry right at the outset was that same burden that we saw in the Puritans earlier. Uh, as Hooker had said, and this is what Freelinghausen was bound to do, to bring the light to their bedsides as they were lurking under the covers so that they cannot escape, applying the word, hitting and pinching as the corruptions of men require. This is a, this is a hard ministry, but it was what Freelinghausen had before him. He, he really saw no choice in the matter. It was, a, it was, in a sense, like John the Baptist in the wilderness, preaching awakening, denouncing and condemning, as it were, in order to be a tutor, uh, like the law, to point to Jesus Christ. So one of his very first sermons, the text was Isaiah 66.2, which we just read a few minutes ago. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. Who are these poor? said Freelinghausen. Such as have a lively, convincing apprehension of their spiritual need, sinfulness, ill desert, and impotence who are sensible of their lost and damnable state and of their inability to achieve, to achieve their own deliverance. So they are driven out of themselves and become humble suppliants at the throne of grace. Well, this kind of preaching could have just as well have been Luther or Calvin. 
as we read from them last week, it could have been Sibs or, or Flavel or Hooker. He was, he was in this tradition. Well, it wasn't a tradition that the people he was preaching to were used to. It was very different. Uh, it was very uh, ill-received. They did not like it. Uh, offense set in quickly. But Freelinghausen was like a flint. And this is a leading uh, feature of his personality. Uh, and it had its faults. We know about Luther. We know, we know how his virtue was his vice as well. The boldness, the holy boldness that he had sometimes caused him to, to uh, exceed all bounds of vehemence. Freelinghausen was a man of this stamp. He very much was. He, he spoke pointedly, uh, very plainly, to the exact condition of his hearers. This was his plan, deliberately. I, I need to know their condition as well as I can by what I observe and what I don't observe and preach accordingly. According, he said, to the style of the Holy Spirit. So here again, he's hearkening back to the Puritans' uh, uh, modus operandi. According to the style of the Holy Spirit, clear and simple, so that I can be understood by all. Well, he meant by this, when he said clear and simple, so that I can be understood by all, in the first place, not with a calculated eloquence, but like the Apostle Paul said, using great plainness of speech, so I can be understood. I'm not going to you know, be hooty-tooty up here. I want them to know exactly what I'm saying, because this is how the Holy Spirit preaches. But then secondly, not, not generally, again, as, as we've noted, but to each particularly, as the particular condition requires. He says, there are godless and unconverted persons, civil, false, pretending Christians. But there are also converted persons, little children, those more advanced, and each one must be spoken to and handled according to his state and frame. He called this, as the Puritans did, discriminatory preaching. Uh, we don't like the word too much nowadays, discrimination. Uh, it was being used in a very good sense, discriminating between one condition and another and, and honing in on it, descending down into the heart of that condition and then applying the word of God uh, as the need required. Now as a sword, now as a cordial, depending again on the need that the condition required. Well, I feel like I'm starting to repeat myself, but the predominant condition of Freelinghausen's congregation, in this case, all four congregations, was one of formalism and self-righteousness. And so he was preaching accordingly. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that he was just obsessed with this kind of preaching, but it was the need. And the need called for a discharge of his duty faithfully. And so he preached. Salvation, he said in one of his early sermons, salvation is quite different from what is supposed by most men. They imagine they are all right and shall be saved, provided... They avoid outward gross sins and perform external duties of godliness. Oh, wretched men! No! Your way of life does not conform to the divine requirements. You feed upon ashes. You are hastening to eternity with a lie in your right hand. A true Christian... So now he's describing their condition as he saw it. And now he's describing the true condition, or the, the condition of a true Christian is one, he says, that's convinced he is by nature under condemnation. He knows himself, is, he is unable to deliver himself. And then he asks the pointed question, are you convinced of the holiness and the justice of God? Do you have such views of what you deserve that you could justify God if he cast you into hell? 
That's a, that's a, that's a very strong question. Well, two questions. First question, are you convinced of the holiness and justice of God? Well, here he locates a leading feature of, of, uh, of the entire Great Awakening. And we're going to see this over and over and over again, especially in the leading ministers of the gospel. This sense of the divine majesty. It's at the heart of the Great Awakening. Uh, an acute sense of it. It's, it's, one of, it's, it's one of the foundations of true religion, certainly, and to an awakening ministry. This acute sense of divine majesty. You, you, you can think of, of biblical saints, how Daniel's comeliness, he said, was turned into corruption when he was approached by that holy presence. You think of Isaiah uh, there in Isaiah 6 and how he cried out, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Well, it was because of this acute sense of the divine majesty that was drawing near to him. Uh, the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do to be saved? It was because of this acute sense that the Spirit had, had brought with himself as he descended on the congregation through the preaching of Peter. Well, Freelinghausen knew that until this was the case for a man, uh, again, we're not talking about degrees. There's greater and lesser degrees of this, this sense of the majesty of the holiness of God. But we're talking about the principle itself, that, there's this, that there is a work of the Spirit that is accomplishing this sense of the holiness and majesty of God. Until a man is struck with this at some level, Freelinghausen knew that his sins would remain benign. They would be manageable. Okay, I've, I've got to deal with them. I know this is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's always this but an extenuating or an excusing of sin until we're confronted with the holiness of God. Until then, a man will never come to, to abhor himself or his sins. And so he, he'll be incapacitated. He won't have the motive power in that case to, tr to, to truly call out for a savior. What would the need be? Uh, there will be no sense of intensity in his, in his calling upon God. He won't be pining for a savior. So you see how this proper view of the holiness of God or God's holiness leads to a proper view of man's sin. It's got to be in that order. Well, this leads to a second question. Do you have such views of what you deserve that you could justify God if he cast you into hell? Well, I wish we had more time to go into this, but Freelinghausen is simply probing the secret, the secret enmity that's in the heart of the self-righteous who, who thinks that as long as thinks that God loves me, uh, as long as I think that He's accepting my sincere efforts, I, I can think that I love God, but I really don't because I love the fruits of, of uh, what He's going to give me. That is, He's going to reward me. So uh, that man loves God so long as he thinks he accepts his sincere efforts. But when he learns that God not only rejects his his his, his worst efforts, but his best efforts and himself then this secret enmity begins to rise in his heart and he begins to charge God with injustice. And he can't even help himself. Luther struggled mightily with this. You know you're sinning and you're blaspheming, but you can't help it because you feel God is being unfair with you. This is what Freelinghausen was probing. Man's helpless against it until the Spirit comes in and humbles him and begins to truly teach him spiritually. And then, and only then, is the man able to take sides with God against himself. In other words, to justify God in God's condemning of him. So that he cries out with David, 
in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, so that you may be justified, O Lord, in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is to justify God, and it really is the beginning of our justification. Well, Week after week, Frelinghausen continued to apply the word to his people's condition, uh, but there was something in addition to this. As they were growing angrier and angrier at being condemned, now he began to exercise a long-neglected discipline with regards to the Lord's Supper. He began fencing the table, which had not been done, and barring some of the leading members from the Lord's table. Well, this, this really exploded into a storm. Archibald Alexander... Uh, who wrote the Log College, which is one of the books on your reading list, uh, which is not an assignment, it's a recommendation, by the way. Uh, Archibald Alexander says, says this about these times here. It was very much a matter of course for all who had been baptized in infancy to be received into communion at the proper age without exhibiting any satisfactory evidence of a change of heart by the supernatural operations of the Holy Spirit. Now, under such a state of things... In a short time, vital piety may have almost deserted the church and formality and dead orthodoxy, all that was left in religion. And nothing is more certain than that when people have sunk into this deplorable state, they will be disposed to manifest strong opposition to faithful, pointed preaching. Well, this is exactly the case in Freelinghausen's congregations between him and his people. Uh, This strong opposition to faithful, pointed preaching. Well, they drew up a formal complaint and sent it back to the classes of Amsterdam saying, this man has no business here. He is is out of all bounds. That was the complaint that they sent to get him fired, essentially. Well, Freelinghausen didn't back down an inch. Like I said, he was like a flint. He says this, I have administered to you the Lord's Supper now and stressed that the unconverted may not approach. What murmuring has this excited? How many tongues set on fire of hell have uttered their slanders? Must I not speak in accordance with the word of God? If your consciences were not insensible, you would tremble in view of God's wrath. I care little what is said behind my back by ignorant and carnal men. They are greatly deceived if they imagine that they will thus put me to silence. For I would sooner die a thousand deaths than not to preach the truth. Now that sounds so harsh, and it is. But then he ends with this. Much loved hearers. Have you with the utmost care examined whether you have been born again? So searching. Well, he was in the robust spirit of of Calvin in the Reformation. Calvin uh, was in similar circumstances. He was expelled from Geneva, if you recall. Well, Freelinghausen wasn't expelled, but two of his four congregations locked him out of their doors. They barred the doors, said, no way, you're not coming here anymore. So his ministry was reduced to a half, just like that. But then, and this is the turning point, and and we've covered the course of five years now, five years from 1720 to 25. The year 1726 was the turning point in Freelinghausen's ministry. The word began to take effect. Right in the midst of this controversy, while they were waiting for their their complaint to, to come back from Amsterdam, while they were locking him out of doors, first one here, And then another began to fall under conviction of sin through this week after week after week preaching. Freelinghausen was right by their side. He says this in one of his sermons, Nothing earthly can satisfy a soul 
that finds in itself only darkness, impurity, sin, and helplessness. Such a soul seeks Jesus with humiliation. It condemns and abhors itself. It looks to Christ, confessing, With my soul have I desired thee in the night. I will wait for the God of my salvation, in whom alone my soul can find rest. Seek the Lord. And here he just, one after another, gives these simple instructions, urgent instructions to his congregation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Get up and do not delay. Get to work. Use every means you know to search for Jesus. Seek him in the assembly of his people. Seek him by studying and searching his word. Ask about him wherever you can. Seek him in prayer in your private chamber in every way and at every time in which he may be found. Today, tomorrow, when you are young, when you are old, in times of affliction, urgently and constantly. Wonderful, sound instructions. Well, soon some of, some of his leading opponents, uh, the staunchest of them, were soundly converted through this preaching. Uh, so as I said, five years it took of all of this fierce contention between pastor and people. Uh, but now, as he entered the year 1726, there was, to, to borrow Watts's words, there was a new face of things that was spread over the entire valley, the entire Raritan Valley in New Jersey. So, uh, so much this morning for Theodore Freelinghouse. And next year, uh, 1727, a new minister would be installed uh, just to his south in New Brunswick. And this was Gilbert Tennant. Uh, very close bond developed between the two men, Freelinghausen and Tennant. We're going to look into Tennant and how he came to America uh, with his family, uh, Lord willing, next week. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these, again, these great things, not of men, but of Jesus Christ, our head and our Savior. In his name we pray. Uh, but also... With your blessing, Lord, we ask on the hour to come, may your word come with sweetness and with power, uh, just as you intend for it to come. Be with us, be with your people everywhere, but here in this little congregation, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.